Welcome to the Comics Course, or as it is more properly known, Graphical Literature 209, uh, Graphic Lit in Society and History here at the Remote, remote Education Program of Miskatonic University. A uh, few little housekeeping notes. One, uh, apparently Dr. Feckett would like me to make it clear that I am not making fun of his name. For the record, I am not. Dr. Feckett is F-E-Q-Q-I-T in Roman letters. I'm not sure of his nationality, but it has nothing to do with our Feckin' Idiots feature, which is Irish. And I'm pretty sure he's not Irish, not with that nose and skin tone. Uh, but if anybody would like to tell me what nationality is primarily recognized by the trait of being tittle lickers, you're welcome to contact me. <clears throat> Thank God he doesn't actually listen to my classes. So, moving on. Today, we are going to talk about true crime. In fact, we're going to talk about serial killer true crime in graphic novels. We have three. I have decided to swap one out for my announcement last week. The two that we are keeping is The Green River Killer and My Friend Dahmer. But I decided to drop Torso for another one called Becoming Unbecoming by Una, which is about the Yorkshire Ripper murders in the 1970s. Um, now, this puts all three of these involving killers in the 1970s that were later caught, uh, often between the 70s through 90s, except for the Yorkshire, which was caught earlier, uh, who was a killer named Peter Sutcliffe. However, each of these fill an interesting niche in true uh, nonfiction, uh, genre of being memoirs. So they are ostensibly about the killers and they're about the cases, but their point of view is really somebody else who is not a subject of the case itself. Now, in one case, it will be somebody who was a personal acquaintance of the killer. In another case, it will be one of the investigators. And in a third case, they will be even further removed in that they are simply somebody that lived in the same time and place as the events happened. I think memoir graphic novels can be very powerful because the added weight of imagery, I mean, it doesn't matter how much you read a book and you just read raw text about what happened. And don't get me wrong, some authors are very powerful at evocative images. But actually seeing it and seeing terror on people's faces and seeing emotion and expression can do a lot more sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that this way of looking at a true event and memoirs are broad. I mean, we have graphic novel memoirs about wars, about social conditions in countries, about people searching for their heritage. All kinds of memoirs are out there. But these where they take the point of view of somebody in a memoir and then use that to look at other events. It's particularly interesting. And two of these have a simil similar approach, but with different outcomes, and the third is radically different. And my friend Dahmer, it really is about Dahmer, but from the point of view and knowledge of people who knew him before and early in his serial killing career. And the Green River Killer, the story really isn't about the killer. The story really in that one is about the detective who dedicated his life to finding the killer. And then in the last one, Becoming Unbecoming, it, well, it's, it's a dense one. 
uh, and I'm going to say it front before we really get into this, and, and I'm this is not joking for a moment, no jokes here, trigger warnings abound. I can't list them all. We are going to try to handle matters tactfully. I know I often joke about things because, um, well, I mean, I think it's okay to have dark humor. But some of the things we're going to talk about, there's no way to talk about in a tasteful way. Even dark humor is not appropriate for. Uh, innocent people being murdered is not funny, period. Rape is not funny, period. Uh, and so there's going to be some dark subject matter. We're going to try to avoid grotesqueness. That is not what we want to do. And we are going to try to stay in good taste. But the subject matter is dark. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I did skip introducing my T.A. Rowan. Hello, T.A. Rowan. Oh, yes, I'm here. You are here. And I know that you have a deep affection for true crime. Um, and you've come in some mornings to the office bleary-eyed saying that you couldn't sleep because you made poor life decisions, staying up listening to true crime podcasts and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, are you looking forward to today's class session? Yes, I'm very interested to see how many details of these cases I already know. Okay. Well, in the first one we're going to jump into, my friend Dahmer, we're not going to touch much on the later crimes. Um, how Are you familiar with the graphic novel My Friend Dahmer by any chance? I've heard of it. I've heard it mentioned quite a few times. I've heard the basic premise of it, but I've never actually read it. Okay. I do recommend it. It is by Durf Backdurf. He was a cartoonist uh, before the idea came to do this. He went to school with Jeffrey Dahmer mm -hmm. and was a personal acquaintance of his, a friend for some period of time. And he was working as a cartoonist uh, in the town where he, Dahmer was charged with a murder. Mm -hmm. um, and his wife... Well, we'll get to that later. His wife was a reporter and gave him early news about it. So his drawing style is very reminiscent of something that I kind of call the 60s, 70s Americana art style. You know, uh, you, you can find it in a lot of alternative comic artists that came out in the 60s and 70s, which is when this guy probably learned to draw. He had done graphic novel work before my friend Dahmer, and has gone through several iterations. The version we're using here is a much later version that incorporates a number of scenes that he deleted, um, copious text notes, rough sketch drawings, a whole bunch of stuff. The early versions were not terribly well received, so it was a labor of love for him to eventually put it together and push it out. And the text quote at the top of the cover is from R. Crumb. R. Crumb is somebody who certainly also is a member of this sort of school of art style, although details are very different. Um, and if you don't know the name Robert Crumb, it's one you should become familiar with. In fact, he's one that I've thought about doing a dedicated class session to talking about. Mm -hmm. So as you move past the cover of My Friend Dahmer, uh, on, the, on the verso it says, you only think you know this story. Now, there are common threads that you find when you look at the backgrounds of a lot of serial killers. Many of them suffer from some form of sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Many of them suffer from some sort of sexual-related psychosis. And this varies dramatically in its exact manifestations, and it's not universal, nothing we're going to talk about is universal. 
but they are common. And certainly is true with all three of the serial killers we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Also, it's very common for serial killers to escalate over time. They start with relatively minor acts of violence and cruelty and escalate up. Um, and of course, it's not surprising to find out that some of them have histories of mental illness in their family. Mm -hmm. And it's unsurprising to find out many of them come from broken homes and didn't really have people to look after them and, ins and, and help intervene in their lives as they went down a dark road. And these are all things that we find in my friend Dahmer. And one thing the author wants to get across, Durf Backdurf, is that Dahmer is a sympathetic figure up until the time he commits the first murder. He is a victim of the circumstances in his life in many ways. And I think this is probably true. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think that's probably true of a lot of people that go down really dark roads that they are victims. That does not mean that once they choose to victimize others that we can, you know, absolve them of that. Just because you've been a victim doesn't give you a right to make others victims. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's okay to look at these people and have sympathy and learn from it and think, you know, maybe we should learn something about this and make sure it doesn't happen to others. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into the details of my friend Dahmer. Let's go through the story a little bit. Uh, he went to a place called Revere High School. He, we open up in the early pages with a rare actual photograph of Jeffrey Dahmer from his high school time period. Uh, here he's seen on the left doing a sort of spaz routine that will become a common motif. Apparently Dahmer would do these things where he made fun of people with speech impediments and who had kind of seizures and would act in this aggressive spastic way. It was one of his few ways of making friends was mocking uh, uh, people and created a sort of uh, act or persona out of it. In fact, when he eventually went to prison, he was a model uh, inmate, except for one time when he made fun of a uh, uh, guard with a speech impediment. Might, a guard or some other functionary. I'm not sure it was a guard. And we have a photograph of what appears to be him here in the midst of that act, that persona. This is one of the few ways he found to actually relate to people and have some sort of friends. Um, although they weren't very good friends and they weren't very deep friends. And in fact, some of them may have, in fact, some of this may have to some degree contributed to his alienation in a way by telling him that the only way he could relate to people was through this cruelty in a sense. Um, it encouraged the spiral. But it may have also given him some of his few happy moments in high school, mm -hmm. which is complicated. Um, we also find out that he told people that he based this performance on an interior decorator his mother would hire. Uh, we later find out that it's most likely based on his mother herself. She may have spent some time in a mental asylum, according to one rumor. She apparently took a great number of prescriptions, and she would have spastic seizures until she would pass out from exhaustion. So... Yeah. Feel, feel free to be armchair psychiatrists and, you know, say that she suffered from X, Y, or Z and that contributed to him. I'm not going to say any of that. Mm -hmm. um, 
but is it a possibility that he suffered from some mental condition that was hereditary or aggravated by hereditary conditions is possible mm -hmm. uh certainly that wasn't comfortable to see and i'm not going to go into detail but his mother's relationship with his father was very bad they fought constantly and uh, from the way the story is told by backdurf here uh his parents had no real time for him mm -hmm. he was left alone and pretty much ignored and a, a what i think is a very common theme of this book is sort of the absence of adults from his life. The absence of anybody who cared enough to stop and say, hey, what's going on with this kid? Is there something we can do to help him? Mm -hmm. That's a very common theme you see with serial killers. Right. No adults, no one around to care. So early on, we see him taking these animal carcasses and melting them in acid to get the bones. He's curious. He wants to see how the things are made. His father is a chemist, so he has access to these chemicals. Uh, and, and this is echoed several more times in the book with other events that show his desire to see the inside workings of creatures. But not in a clinical way, not in a I'm fascinated in biology way, but in a desire to sort of uh, uh, embrace the grotesqueness of death. Mm. And it scares away other kids who he thought would be fascinated with it the way he was. And through junior high, he's on the bottom of the social spectrum. Now, the author of this, Durf Backdurf, doesn't cast any particular aspersions. He says, you know, essentially... Uh, Dahmer was not, in fact, the very bottom of the social spectrum. That was reserved for a few other people. But he was near it, but so were the author and his friends, who were band geeks. So... Which are always low on the hierarchy. Right. So, as the story progresses from junior high through high school, we see Jeffrey Dahmer taking on this spastic persona, where he turns his arms at weird angles and stretches out and contorts his fingers and turns his head and screams and he does routines to terrify for example the school librarian and apparently does this for years and is never caught at it and you do have to question is this an early form of mocking and testing authority of seeing can he get away with things and not be caught i think it's an interesting question anyway. yeah and definitely um, there's a chance and as time goes on uh, we see that, in fact, also near the end of the spectrum is a guy who's kind of this violent thug at the school called Lloyd Fig. And, in fact, later when the author finds out that somebody from his high school class had been a serial killer, his first guess wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer. His first guess was Lloyd Fig. And then his second guess was Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, during all this time, Dahmer does have a few friends including the author and a couple of other associated people. In fact, they form what they call the Jeffrey Dahmer Fan Club, where they copy his mannerisms in the spastic persona he does and encourages him to do it more. In fact, at one point, they pay him money to go in public spaces and do it to disturb people. Oh, God. Um, and, but for a while, the in fact, later, this is one of the fascinating things about Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, after he was caught, 
had a very clear memory of his crimes, and was very upfront about them. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, cooperated with authorities, he cooperated with interviewers. In fact, he only seemed to get aggravated with interviewers when they'd repeat the same questions over and over and over again, because he'd already answered them very clearly. I mean, what did they want him to do? You know, make them more salacious somehow? Um, and in prison, he became a born-again Christian and and claimed that Jesus had forgiven him of his sins. Uh, and he requested transfer from special to general population, which is how he got killed. If you if you end up being a serial killer, don't go in popu- don't go in public population. That's how you die. Don't do it. Well, if he was sincere, maybe that he wanted it for some reason. I don't know. Um, but he was very upfront about these things, and he gave very clear interviews, including saying that during that brief time in high school when he was surrounded by people and he didn't name them by names but that that was the happiest time in his life. Mm-hmm. So these people who, you know, were asshole kids of the 70s mm-hmm. and encouraged him to do these spastic, horrible displays um, may have also been his only friends. And if he had continued to have friends, maybe he wouldn't have become a serial killer. We don't know. Maybe if he had better friends. But as time went on and they approached a high school graduation, uh, they drifted apart. They didn't see him as much. Some of them continued to hang out in the months after high school ended, but they didn't include him. Now, during the same time, he was going through adolescence like everybody else was. Mm-hmm. He was gay, which in the 1970s wasn't as bad as to say the 1950s or 60s, but still very problematic, especially in a rural you know, place like he lived in. I mean, he wasn't living in New York City where there were pockets of gay community. He was living somewhere where, in the words of the author, we had gay kids in school and nobody came out. Now, I grew up in the 1980s in a rural community and I totally get this. This is just not something people did or talked about. So this probably contributed to his sense of shame and he had a desire to kill and sleep with the corpses because it gave him total control over them if they were dead. And that's something he desired from a life of having no control over anything. Uh, I think it's a fairly powerful story, and he fights with it. He fights to not commit his first murder. He escalates by killing animals and killing more and more animals and then flaying the flesh from them. He even puts up little... Uh, uh, sort of monuments of them, trophies around this little sort of stone altar in the woods. He stops himself at least once from killing a dog out of shame of trying to do it. Um, So he's escalating, but he knows it's wrong, but he can't help himself. And it just gets worse and worse for him until eventually he actually does it. I'm flipping through some pages for my TA here, and here's one of the mother going through her spasms. It's a grotesque image and probably absolutely terrifying to a little boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The author shows one scene. Now, I should say, one of the things the author did in preparation for this book was he contacted a bunch of old high school friends. He said... Uh, the other members of the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club, one of whom he had stayed in contact with as an adult, two of which he had not. 
and they got together and talked about their memories and talked about what had happened so that they could share those details. And one of the stories he shares is going fishing with Jeffrey Dahmer in a little man-made lake where there are tiny little fish. So you catch them and you just toss them back. And Dahmer catches one, pulls it out, and just grotesquely... And I know I keep using that word grotesque, but I'm not sure of another word. I mean, horrible and visceral don't quite cover it. Um, but he takes a penknife and cuts the fish apart violently. Because... Because he can. Well, the guy yells at him, what did you do that for? And he said, I just wanted to see what it looked like. And the story goes through not just his killing of the animals, uh, his aborted attempt at killing this jogger that he was obsessed with, uh, but goes through his alcoholism. Apparently, he was a complete alcoholic. He drank all day at school. He would walk around with a styrofoam cup the kind that students could get filled with coffee and filled it with scotch. Mm -hmm. People could smell the alcohol off him, and yet the teachers ignored it and did nothing. Because he was, quote-unquote, a model student. He didn't act like a stoner, so he was ignored. So he, it didn't matter for the school. So he just fell into the background. And, you know, this contributed to everything. And why did he drink? He drunk because his home life was hell and it numbed him. So the, the story obviously goes in a lot more detail, but this really is a story up through this point of someone trying not to give in to their horrible urges. Now he in the end does. And in fact, one of the stories that's told um, involves one of the members of the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club seeing him out on the road in the dark, picking him up and driving him home. And by comparing timelines later and knowing what Jeffrey Dahmer told the police about the exact days of certain events, the guy who drove him home realized years later that he pulled into the driveway next to the cut-up body of Dahmer's first victim. Oh, God, that must be horrifying. Right. He came so close to discovering it. So, I'm only touching on a few high points here. But I think it communicates the gist of how my friend Dahmer works. They're telling these personal stories. Now, some of it is backed up uh, not just from they discussing what happened, but also specific events from Dahmer's own interviews. And Dahmer's father wrote a book about raising Jeffrey Dahmer also that paints himself in maybe a more fair light than is entirely deserved. Jeffrey's father, um, Lionel Dahmer. Well, but, he wouldn't want to paint himself as a neglectful father. Right. But he's not entirely, you know, forgiving of himself either. Uh but provides more details about some specific things that happened mm -hmm. and dates. So we have those for reference. Because we actually know a fair bit about Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. Well, in part because of that. And that's going to stand in stark contrast to when we talk about the Green River Killer. Now, Dahmer had a great memory. He remembered things he did. He remembered dates he did them. They were burned in his memory, maybe in part because of his shame. We don't know. And he was willing um, to tell us stuff. Right. 
And for those who don't know, he escalated to more murders. He slept with the corpses of his victims. He ate parts of their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty grotesque. I'm not going to go over all that. You can get a summary of it from a source like, say, Wikipedia. And there are many resources out there about it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a great work. For anybody interested, I encourage you to read My Friend Dahmer. It is a wonderful add-on to any other nonfiction works about Dahmer the serial killer. So let's do our review real quick. Mm -hmm. Now, art. I flipped through a whole bunch of it as we've been talking. Uh, it is of a style that I think you have to get used to, and it's a style that I suspect you're not used to. Yeah, I'm not. I wouldn't normally be a big fan of this art style, but with the story it's telling and the scenes that it's showing, I think it works. And I think you have to understand it within the fact that it is a sort of school of art. Mm -hmm. There, There is, and we will show more examples of it as we go on. So, how many tentacles do you give this? Seven. Seven tentacles for art. Okay. Because I think it really works for this. It does. And I will say for originality and concept, I'm giving it a nine. Yeah, this was, if I remember correctly, this was one of the few works of people writing books and stuff about their experiences with serial killers before they got caught and stuff. Right, and it's hard to get more original in concept than a unique life experience. Mm -hmm. um, it is very well done. For the actual writing quality, I'm going to give it an eight. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's well executed. All in all, I think this probably averages out around eight. Uh, actually, I'm going to say nine tentacles. Mm -hmm. I think this is actually a must read for people. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to move on to Green River Killer, a true detective story by Jeff Jensen and Jonathan Case. Uh, again, the writer here has a very personal connection to the story because the story is really about the writer's father. Now we're going to start with the prologue in 1965 of the story where we see this older teenage kid approach a little kid. The little kid is playing with toy guns and the teenage kid offers to go out in the woods with him and help him build a fort to fight off the engines. And the kid prefers the term engines. And then the older kid attacks him from behind a knife and stabs him and says, I did it because I wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. Now, interestingly, we don't find out till the very end of the book that this little kid actually survived. And we don't know until the Green River Killer started doing confessions that this was his first attack on a human being. Um, as he grew up, his victims were not generally chilled, were not children, although some were certainly very young, and they were female. But obviously he was preoccupied with violence from a pretty young age. And you have to imagine that his attack on this young boy to see what killing somebody felt like was probably preceded by violent acts on animals. Mm -hmm. Again, very common pattern. A build-up. And the story takes place uh, first following this young man who is figuring out what he's going to do with his life. He's in the Navy. He's thinking about this and that. Uh, he has a girl that he's dating. He's a clerk in the Navy. He has a bit of wry humor about it. I think the text here may be from an actual letter. 
And if you're thinking this is going to be about the Green River Killer, uh, you think, wow, this is a pretty idyllic setup. Um, but of course, if you know a lot of details about the Green River Killer, you know the names don't match. But what it turns out is, we, as we follow this character, he's at the beach with his wife, they have a little child, and he says, you know what? I think I might make a good cop. I'm thinking about joining the police force. So he grows a mustache, and by 1980, he does. And he becomes uh, one of the first members of the Green River Task Force, tracking down the Green River Killer. And this story is really about him, Tom Jensen. Mm -hmm. And he, his son is the one who wrote the book about his father. The little boy at the beach? Yes. I think so. They had several kids. Oh, okay. Um, and the story that we first enter on is actually a brutal murdering in a in a, a bar that has nothing to do with the Green River Killers, but it's kind of his introduction to homicide work. And again, this really is about him. And then we see the author with his brother, and they're watching TV. I don't remember if the author is the younger or older brother, so I'm it not... It doesn't really matter for this. Yeah, um... But this really becomes a story about the detective and the fact that for those who don't know about the Green River Killer, uh, a number of bodies were found along the Green River in Washington State, King County, where Seattle is, uh, although outside Seattle itself. And they were generally believed to be prostitutes. Some were known to be prostitutes. There was kind of an assumption that the others were, which led to some confusion because some people tried to attach missing persons to some bodies found and you know the cops wouldn't say oh well were they hooking you know like they're probably our body over here and people would say no they weren't a hooker and they weren't doing that kind of thing so that may have confused the investigation at parts mm -hmm. um what we find out about oh i don't know 30 or so pages in is they have the killer. He comes in and he comes in for interviews. And this is a true story. Uh, basically, they had him on about seven or eight counts of murder. I don't remember the exact number. I'm not, I, I, I'll go and tell you, I'm not a serial killer, you know, super fan. Uh, my interest here is the graphic novel stories about it and, and what they have to say about graphic literature. Oh, and I also say all three of these are black and white. And one of the things I like about this one is the very strong defined line work. But they make them, but they then put in this little delicate line work around the faces that always draws you into the faces. So they bring this guy into the bunker because they've caught this guy. He has been charged, and they're pretty sure they can convict him on seven or eight of the counts of murdering these women. And he says, by the way, I've killed a bunch more. And I'll give you details, but the deal is, I get life in prison and you don't push for the death penalty. Ooh, that would make families upset. Well, but of course the flip side is, they get to close a bunch of cases and potentially yeah. give families closure. Because, you know, if they can find the, you know, there are people who they don't know what happened to their children, mm -hmm. their daughters... You know, it gives them some closure to know that they've passed on. 
And as much as I don't like making deals with killers, I think that's the better solution. It is difficult. And, and they show that conflict. At one point, they talk to these different people involved in the task force, and they ask them, uh, what do you think? And they're split with different opinions. Mm -hmm. And I can totally understand that. Yeah. We also find out that uh, basically around this time, the detective has retired. He retired shortly after they caught him. And the way they caught him was DNA evidence. The way many get caught. Right. The guy had been guilty long before. Uh, they had interviewed him as a suspect. He was one of their prime suspects. They had enough to force to compel a DNA sample from him from his saliva, but they didn't have the technology to get his DNA off some of the ev other evidence to compare against. Once technology had developed far enough to do so, they did so, boom, they had him. Because they had to make sure they had everything before they could convict him. Right. Because you have to be very careful in getting them the first time. Right, because you, what you don't want to do is charge them with the crimes, them to get out on a technicality, and then have double jeopardy kick in and not be able to convict him later. For those not familiar, the principle in United States jurisprudence, these things vary country to country, of course, mm -hmm. uh, you cannot be charged on the same thing twice. Now, if new evidence comes along and provides a new variation on the crime to be charged on, new charges, they can do that. But you are only supposed to be charged with a given crime once, which is why it sometimes takes cases a very long time to come to court, because they want to make sure they can convict. And they've got all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed, no technicalities for them to get out on, that no procedure is screwed up. You know, some guy picked up evidence without a glove and tainted it. That yeah. kind of crap. So if you're ever frustrated with cops and going, this guy is clearly him, that's probably why they haven't convicted him yet. They need 100% evidence. Right. Because if they rush it and then he gets off, they've lost their chance. They can't just... Because otherwise, our legal system becomes one of... Just convict them till they get them. Right. Just harassment. You know, conviction through harassment. And we don't want that either. Mm -hmm. So, one of the challenges they have as this guy comes forward, and again, I don't want to go into all the specific details because people can find it themselves, is that he reveals that, A, they weren't necessarily all prostitutes, but they were women that would have sex with him, mm -hmm. and that he had sex with them, and then something compelled him to kill them. And some, a few of them were actual multiple-time partners where he didn't kill them the first time. And that the reason he started burying them, he claims, is because he had compulsions to come back and have sex with the corpses. And that he did that a few times with some of them. And then he started burying them to try to keep himself from doing that because he was ashamed of himself for it. Uh, now, during all this, he's remarried to a new woman. And his murder rate went down, but didn't stop completely. And as he's doing these interviews... He becomes extremely unreliable. You know, he doesn't remember dates. He doesn't remember places. He takes them on what appear to be wild goose chases. Is he doing this to make fun of the police? Does he honestly have a bad memory? As one exchange goes, somebody says, well, you know, this is 20 years ago. Do you remember what you did 20 years ago? And if I murdered someone, yes. 
Yeah, and that's what the other person responds with. If I had if I had raped somebody, took their clothes off, strangled and murdered them with their own clothes, and came back and had sex with their corpse, I think I would remember details. I would remember the position of the sun. Right. Now, I I hope I'm assuming this is a hypothetical for you and you haven't actually done it. Of course, hypothetically. <laughs> um but it's an interesting story in that regard. In this is the backdrop to the detective story because as this comes along, what we see is the, de you know, popular media is filled with the angst ridden detective who's obsessed with the case and then the system doesn't allow him to go after it and he goes rogue. Well, I mean, that's all bullshit. If you go rogue, you can't convict somebody, you know. These movies where the cop goes rogue and ignores procedure and gets the evidence to convict him, well, that evidence was improperly gathered. You can't convict him. Yeah, you have to work within the system. So this guy has dedicated his life to finding the Green River Killer. Uh, the police had the wisdom to have a task force that continued to work on it long after it was a cold case and hope something would eventually come up, which it did. Um, it wasn't the only thing he did. He helped out on other homicide cases over the years. And after he retired, he came to work for the police department again as a consultant, continuing to work on trails and leads from the cases, such as identifying unidentified dead women from the case. Um, so this really became his life's work. And his breaking point, his breaking point is after these field trips. You know, they're trying to get inside his head. They're trying to understand, is he lying? Does he not really remember this stuff? Has he made up that he killed more women to try to get out of a death penalty? I mean, it seems possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, what is he lying about? What is he not lying about? And one of the theories is that he's so ashamed of all this that he doesn't want to admit it. So they're trying to get him back into that mindset. They're trying to get into his head and be like, be that old cold-blooded serial killer. And don't feel shame. Tell us what happened. This is, we need this for closure for the families. And all of this leads up to a final sort of confrontation where they are sitting there in the bunker the bunker is their term for this facility they've built to hold him for these investigations. And the reason for it is they don't want anybody to get a clue about this. Nobody can tell their families. They've taken an office. They've walled it off. They've put in temporary bedrooms. They're all basically living there just isolated. Oh, I don't want to imagine what that would do to your mind. Now, some of the cops are leaving to go home, of course. But through all this, you know, the the, the detective, Tom Jensen, who this is about, uh, he's kept as a motto, the impossible dream. That they have to see this through. They have to solve it, even though it seems impossible. And... He wants to know something, of course. He wants to know why. Why did this guy kill those people? 
Because he claims that he wanted to stop. Right? Mm -hmm. He says, that's why I started burying them. Why I dumped them further. I wanted to stop. He, he didn't want to continue to face his own horridness. And he doesn't really get a real answer. I mean, they think they have some breakthroughs. He acts like he's confronting his inner demons. He talks about drinking. He talks about the one woman that he killed and slept next to at his home before he took her body out and redressed it. He talks about how she was special. Her name was Christine King. And the detective eventually confronts him and he says, you say this is all about sex. You keep talking about the sex. You keep talking about how you made them feel good and then they wouldn't respond the way you liked and how bad, angry it made you. But this was about the killing too, wasn't it? You'd killed before, yes. You knew what happens. You know how it happens, yes. And yet you did it anyway, knowing she was going to wind up dead. Yes. And eventually Tom Jensen breaks down. The question that's been on his mind the whole time. Why? Why did you do this? And he's looking for a profound answer. And the answer is actually the classic serial killer answer. I needed to kill. I just needed to kill. Horrifying. Yeah. That's sadly normally the only real answer you'll ever get with these kind of cases. Yeah. Uh, now, if, if you want to take an armchair psychi psychiatry position, you can say it's about powerlessness. It's, it, it's about violating social norms. It's about this. It's about that. And, and I think all those things are probably true. Mm -hmm. But I do think that I need to kill is as far as their consciousness takes it. Mm -hmm. Where it begins and ends. Because um, there's a difference between what their brain is doing versus what they think is why. Right. And, and it kind of, for a little while, breaks the cop, Tom Jensen. But then he recovers, and he sucks it up, and he deals with it, and he goes back. And it's really a story of fortitude. It is a story about... The fact that we read a people read about the Green River Killer and they read about um, all the horrible things he did, and we think about police as these dramatic people, but this guy quietly lived his life. His slow, methodical work didn't directly solve the crime, but it wouldn't have been solved without his work. Mm -hmm. And he continued to do this service and duty, and it's a story of fortitude. And a story of somebody who wanted to understand this horror that he had lived next to for decades, mm -hmm. studying it to try to find the guy and could not understand it. Mm -hmm. um, a man who's a good father. Mm -hmm. So, and that brings us to our third one, uh, Becoming Unbecoming by Una. Una is this uh, monosyllabic name by an English author who prefers to be unknown, I believe. I, I don't think people know who she actually is. Um, Becoming Unbecoming is a very difficult work. It was published in 2016 by Arsenal Pulp Press. It well, we, we didn't do our rating for uh, The Green River Killer. Let me back up a second. 
Uh-huh. Sorry, I was eager to jump into this. Um, art. Where are you on the art for Green River Killer? I liked it. I really liked the details on the face. It felt very real. Mm-hmm. Which I always like when there's heavy details on the faces. Right. Uh, but other than the faces, it was okay. I mean, I mean, it was strong lines. Mm-hmm. It was simple. It, but I think our focus was supposed to be on the faces. Yeah. And that's why. So I think overall, I think it's like a seven, six. Okay. Which one? Seven or six? Seven. Seven. Okay. Uh, the story. I'm gonna give the story a solid seven. Um, it it suffered at times from not having a great narrative flow. Sometimes it jumped in time in ways that were a little awkward. Uh, but the story itself is powerful, and and I do love. And, and this is getting into the idea of the concept of telling the story of the police and the people around the investigation rather than the criminal, especially when they're not super dramatic. And yet, I think there's a lot of drama found in everyday life. And I think they did a good job of showing that. So I'm going to say a seven um, there. And I think it's also interesting to hear the side of good cops, because in true crime, cops kind of get shit on a lot. So it's very interesting to actually see their perspective on what's going on. So I'm going to give the whole thing seven tentacles out of ten, in yeah. my opinion. Okay. So Una, 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 I think, is going to be very difficult to judge and evaluate. It's a very dense work, and frankly, I struggle to know where to begin. Um, it, is a, it is a book about women and about femininity, about being a girl. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the Yorkshire Ripper case, very briefly, 1970s, these women were being killed. Uh, when Peter Sutcliffe was eventually captured, he said that God told him to kill prostitutes. So, you know, go ahead and cue up all the psychology stuff about women and sex uh, and men with issues with it. Uh, but this story is written about a girl who was not directly involved in it, but she also tells the story of it. But she's there in Yorkshire when all of it's happening. Um, she starts off with the very first few pages with some simple graphics. One is her carrying this big, looks like an empty bag, up the planet to a tree. And a tree is a continuing motif in here Mm -hmm. because a tree has to grow. It may grow straight. It may get crooked. Branches may come off. But it continues to grow, but is constantly affected by the environment and beaten around, much like she is. And and, And she stands here really... Um, even though it's her individual story, she's not a metaphor, but she is representative of all girls. And Peter Sutcliffe had this ish, these issues with women, um, but maybe all of society does. And she talks about uh, how when she f- was very young, seven or eight, she'd listen to Top of the Pops, and all the covers involved these scantily clad girls, and she liked guitar, but she didn't like rock and roll. And we see tons of uh, uh, motifs used throughout this. And one of these early ones, we see these little lines of paper off her clothing as she's standing there with a guitar, like she's one of those little dress-up dolls that they had in comics and magazines back in the 60s, 70s, and even part of the 80s. Um, And the art jumps around. And it goes everywhere from full-page pictures with dubious meanings to isolated graphics 
that you have to interpret. And it doesn't follow any visual design pattern that's consistent. Each page simply tells the story however she wants to tell it. With sometimes text going in simple horizontal lines. Sometimes it wraps around items. Sometimes it's hard to tell what she's trying to say. But the story quickly becomes clear of her mother who was in a difficult position. She had an unwed child, although that wasn't Una. Uh, Una was raped one or more times. Um, suffered from post-traumatic stress, which is not uncommon, of course, with that sort of violent physical and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, and grows up with this backdrop of the Yorkshire Rippers. Or Ripper. And, you know, during the 70s, there's a lot of stuff happening. You know, the IRA, race riots, all this stuff happening. And, you know, if it sounds like I'm stumbling here, it's because there's so much. We could spend a lot of time deconstructing this work. And... I think there's a lot you could take away from it, but I think that constant motif she returns to of those trees growing up and the hills that have to be climbed and the clothes of the cutout dolls, she she's returning to these themes of women being defined by appearance, mm -hmm. women being swappable items, um, women having an uphill climb, women having to grow despite being, you know, battered by the environment um, and that in a way this violence of the Yorkshire Ripper and these crimes the Yorkshire Ripper committed which she goes into more detail later sort of in the second half of the book are in a way unremarkable they're almost inevitable just by the time you get to them they're just another aspect of England at that time and and you almost have to be surprised that it was newsworthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, these horrible things are happening to girls all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think it is a very powerful work. Uh, so I, I really am hesitant to go into deep detail on this work because some of it is going to be extremely triggering to people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to go ahead and... I hate to spend such a short amount of time on it, but it, it's almost like a Gordian's Knot. If we start trying to pick this apart, we're going to be here for the next three hours. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much detail. And I think we have to settle on those major themes to talk about it abstractly. Um, and then just let it go. With maybe a recommendation. So we're going to do the uh, ruling on how many tentacles it gets, uh, and then I'll say a little something additional about it. So what do you think of the art? I don't really know what to say because it changes every panel. Right. There, it's not consistent. I mean, she'll sometimes use two or three panels with a consistent sort of visual style um, and then drop it for something new. It is, I think, an excellent representation in some ways of a mind trying to make a coherent vision of something that's inherently incoherent. Mm -hmm. I think it's an attempt to visually represent 
the reality of trying to think back through post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like it, but it does make it something very dense because you're not just reading text and seeing pictures that accompany it. The pictures are information that mm-hmm. you have to tease out. And I think sometimes you have to read two or three pages, then go back and reread those two or three pages. I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. The question is, does it always work? I'm not sure it always works, but it is ambitious as hell in a way, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's a topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about because it makes them uncomfortable. Uh, because she's going far beyond just the objectification of women. I mean, a, a comic that shows, you know, women with dolls' clothes and being defined by it, that's been done before, that sort of motif, that theme, certainly. Mm-hmm. But she's talking about the experiences of, you know, young girls getting raped and they don't even talk to each other about it when it happens a few feet from each other because of the shame and understanding that nobody's going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it and... In some ways, talking about it like a powerful traumatic event, and in some ways talking about it like, almost like she feels that she shouldn't make a big deal about it, because why should she make a big deal about it happening to her when it happens to so many? Mm-hmm. And that's a real sort of survivor's guilt kind of mm-hmm. problem too, right? Yeah, which you hear about a lot from sexual assault survivors. Right. Uh, 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 uh. And, and I'm I'm not here to try to understand and solve the world's problems. What I'm here to do is talk about stories, and I do think it's a powerful story, mm-hmm. and I think it's a powerful way of trying to tell that story. I don't think it works all the time. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to give the art a solid seven for I don't think it always works, but I think it deserves a one or two bonus points for attempt. Uh, I'll be honest, the the actual graphics themselves are pretty crude. I, I think, actually, with a more talented artist, it could bump it up to an 8, 9, mm-hmm. 10 easily. Agreed. But I don't think the talent of the artist matched the vision. Mm-hmm. But I still think it deserves a 6. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story... You know, if you're trying to tell a linear story, I'd give this a 5, maybe a 6. But... I think it's trying to capture a mental state of this post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. and understand understood through that lens. I think it's an eight. And originality and concept, again, it's a personal story. You don't get more original than that. Yeah. Um, but she does position it as something against the Yorkshire Ripper murders. And she doesn't tell that connection well at times. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is a personal story, so you, we don't get to judge that, mm-hmm. but we do as readers get to judge what we consume. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give that maybe a seven. Okay. So I think we're feeling around a seven here. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I have said before that, you know, out of eight tentacles plus two platonically perfect tentacles, mm-hmm. our scale is one to ten, with a nine to ten being you must read it. I think this story is dense enough that even though we only rated it a 7, and I say only a 7, 7 is really high on our scale, really. Uh-huh. Um, I think this is worth a broad recommendation. And I think it's a broad recommendation not p- 
purely for its quality as a graphic novel, but as something to think about. Mm-hmm. And that, mm, I, I think the world's a better place than it was then. I think it's a better place for women than it was then. But I don't think all of it's changed as much as we'd like to think. Mm-hmm. So, Especially I, with things like sexual assault. So I'm going to give it a strong recommendation that people read it. Mm-hmm. Um, not for its pure quality as a graphic novel, but also as something to think about as a work of society and culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm trying to keep the class sessions to around an hour these days. I know we ran to like two hours <laughs> on our last long class session. We had a lot to say. We did. Um <laughs> We're going to have a midweek Feckin' Idgits again this week. This time, Feck... I have not been on the internet, so people haven't been pissing me off. So instead, our Feckin' Idgits is going to be maybe a little bit more pleasant. I'm going to talk about a few titles that I've been reading recently that are not major sellers, and people are Feckin' Idgits because they're not reading them and they should be. And next week, when we release our new class session... What we're going to do is go back to some superhero comics. And because superhero comics are such a large part of the genre, we're going to feature them routinely. But this is going to feature another major part of the market, manga also, because we're going to talk about the Legion of Superheroes versus My Hero Academia and why one is working to capture uh, the youth of America while the other isn't. And a hint, the one that's succeeding is not Legion of Superheroes. And we're going to have a special guest star who's time-traveled from the future, the ghost of Brian Michael Bendis. All right. Oh, Lord, help us. We'll see you in a few days. Bye.